There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this podcast. A lot of people down here in the locker room right now. It's very There's joyful. We'll hope to get Victor oh, Nagara. What's going it's on Willie Roy. Roy. What happened, Kenny? Willie, the fans are right there. There's Chicago right hey, there. Hey, Have fans, we're number one. Cubs are going to do it again. And next to the White Sox. Thank you. Willie, Super. you had to be concerned. I had two goals. The crowd back into the game. You know what happened, Kenny? We gave him a bad, uh, bad mistake on that cross, and they sort of gave him momentum again. But you see the type of team that we had. We didn't quit. We came right back again, got the winning goal. This is the greatest team that I've ever coached. I think these guys are absolutely super, Kenny. Is it a little bit more gratifying beating Toronto, a contrast in styles between especially, the two clubs? Especially at their own home field, you know, where they had everything going for them. We beat them in their own ballpark. And that shows that we're number one. We're the best team in North America. We're the best professional soccer team. Super, Kenny. Thank you very much, Willie. Ron Newman got the Coach of the Year award, but certainly Willie Roy uh, should have deserved it. He did it with the team he put together. I got the money instead, so that's all right. (laughs) Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right. How are you, everybody? It's Tim Hanlon, and it's uh, Good Seats Still Available. Yes, it's our weekly journey into what used to be in professional sports. We, of course, appreciate you finding us and downloading us and putting us uh, into your earbuds this week. Uh, We continue to uh, soldier on, and uh, we hope you are, too, uh, given all the the, uh, craziness of the world around us. And uh, we hope that uh, you and yours are safe, uh, remaining healthy, and uh, doing all the right things around you to uh, to stay that way as we all sort of uh, struggle and lumber on uh, through all of this craziness, this uh, wackiness of times, both economically as well as, of course, uh, in health. And uh, we wish you uh, nothing but the best in, in continuing to do so. And hopefully, in our own small, very little minuscule-like way, uh, we can uh, distract you from uh, the various uh, drumbeats of news and uh, and fears and anxieties and all that kind of stuff with our little silliness that we have been doing each and every week, if you're new to the uh, festivities, uh, around uh, uh, teams and leagues and and uh, no longer with us, whether defunct or previously relocated or, or whatever, uh, our little fascination born from, frankly, North American Soccer League uh, childhood memories was uh, yours truly was a New York Cosmos uh, soccer fan uh, back in the day, the old giant stadium, the old Yankee stadium. And, uh, you know, sort of wondering why and where uh, these uh, this team, that team, of course, the North American Soccer League pro soccer went uh, all these various teams that sort of came and, and, and left and, and the great uh, logos and, and color schemes and all that kind of stuff. And that, you know, as we got older and a little wiser, uh, it sort of just kind of morphed into kind of a, a perverse fascination about uh, all kinds of teams and leagues and pro Sports and and you know the USFL and the World Football League and you you and now it's it's become almost uh, 160 episodes and counting of inquisitiveness around what the hell happened uh, to these teams and some of the stories around them uh, these leagues uh, some of them frankly never even got off the ground uh, what, what what of all of those things well the motivations the people the 
the personalities, uh, the the business rationales, whatever uh, around uh, all of this. Uh, and it's become a genre for us and you uh, out there in listener land. And we're, we're just amazed uh, at the growing number of folks who have done so. And not just in the United States and in Canada, but all over this planet who have uh, similarly uh, discovered either a particular team or a sport uh, that's piqued their interest or uh, a mighty band of folks who uh, have been instilled with this similar bout of curiosity around uh, this little genre that we've uh, somehow created for ourselves. We appreciate it, of course. And again, if we can distract you from uh, the day-to-day and the boredom, perhaps as uh, as you're pining around the house for a couple of weeks now, God forbid we can uh, lighten your load a little bit and we're pleased to do so and uh, we're happy to engage you in in that process. And this week, we uh, we reward you, hopefully, with uh, part two of our uh, fantastic conversation that we began last week with uh, former Chicago Sting uh, legend and National Soccer Hall of Famer, Willie Roy. And as you remember last week, uh, not shy with the opinions, Mr. Roy. And uh, we were kind of literally only kind of just scratching the surface uh, sort of with a prelude, I guess, of of the career, right? Uh, the If you haven't listened to the previous episode, number 156 with Willie, by all means, give a listen. Maybe you want to listen to that before this one. Uh, but uh, the uh, the sojourn, if you will, of of the pro soccer player in the late 1960s in this country, not the easiest or clearest cut of, uh, of journeys, for sure. Uh, and Willie uh, regaled us with some of his uh, uh, national team exploits in the late 60s, early 1970s. Uh, pioneering those for sure. Uh, The 1967 National Professional Soccer League, one of the two predecessors of the uh, 1968 and onward North American Soccer League with the Chicago Spurs of said NPSL, uh, the 1968 uh, relocated Kansas City Spurs, and of course then the the collapse almost of the NASL and the the Spurs kind of soldiering on. The St. Louis Stars experience from uh, 71 through 74 uh, that Willie uh, experienced, uh, including, by the way, the 1972 championship game against the New York Cosmos, who won their first championship in 1972. Uh, The St. Louis Stars were the team that they beat uh, two to one uh, at Hofstra uh, that season. Uh, And of course, uh, we leave you on your on the doorstep for this conversation this week. Our part two with Willie Roy as we get into the depths of the Chicago Sting story. And that little clip that you heard uh, at the top of our little showgram here uh, was the uh, the crazy locker room stuff going on after the uh, second championship winning uh, game clinching uh, that the uh, Chicago Sting won in 1984. As we said earlier, it's uh, October 3rd, 1984. Uh, the second championship that the Sting won, ironically, the second championship that they won in Toronto uh, this time actually beating a team in Toronto, the Blizzard, in a uh, best-of-three game set. Uh, the first one, of course, being that uh, dramatic 1981 uh, shootout victory over the mighty New York Cosmos uh, at Exhibition Stadium in Toronto. It's just a very interesting uh, a little sort of uh, piece of trivia there. And as we also said before, uh, the second piece of trivia, of course, is that game and the uh, the locker room shenanigans that you heard there. Uh, with Kenny Stern, the son of Sting founder Lee Stern, uh, doing the interviews. He was on the broadcast teams for many of those Chicago Sting years, as you might remember, uh, interviewing Willie Roy. And, uh, you know, that uh, uh, that time, I it doesn't seem like <laughs> if you look at the YouTube clips and hear the, the various interviews and stuff, it doesn't seem like they uh, particularly 
uh, were fearing too much uh, what might come next season. And of course, alas, uh, there was no next season, at least outdoors for the uh, the North American Soccer League. That was indeed the final game in NASL history, that, uh, that second championship winning game against Toronto for the Chicago Sting. And that's what we're going to get into with Willie this week. All of the sort of uh, ups and downs and sideways of coaching this uh, now legendary team, the Chicago Sting. And um, it's uh, it continues to be a crackling uh, discussion. And uh, much like we set up last week uh, in our first part, uh, you will enjoy and then some uh, the various exclamation points of this week's conversation as we center more solidly around the Chicago Sting with uh, our guest again this week, Willie Roy. We uh, look forward to presenting that to you in mere moments. Before we do so, we want to tip our uh, our promotional cap to our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Dean Mitchell in San Diego, chief proprietor of such, where we encourage you to uh, visit early and visit often. And of course, uh, there's great, uh, well, memorabilia of all kinds of things from all kinds of great uh, teams and leagues no longer with us, all kinds of sports, and, and it's just it's a treasure trove, and it's it's fascinating, and it's all well photographed uh, and there for you to uh, enjoy and hopefully make a purchase of. And of course, when you go to sportshistorycollectibles.com, we got a promo code for you. It's Good Seats. Make sure you use the promo code Good Seats and get 15% off all of your purchases uh, when you visit early and often. And of course, there's lots of Chicago Sting stuff there for you, including, very interestingly, uh, a July 1984 uh, issue of Soccer Digest. If you remember that, sort of the uh, somewhat smaller sort of publication that was out there was kind of the complement, if you will, the monthly complement uh, to the more weekly and uh, newspaper like Soccer America. And uh, on this uh, this copy, uh, which you can purchase uh, for a reasonable price at sportshistorycollectible.com and use the promo code Good Seats and get 15% off that already reasonable price, is uh, a picture of Carl Heinz Granitza. And the subtitle, <laughs> Why His Sting Hate Outdoors, uh, which I think is is telling because 1984 is a very interesting and transitional year for the North American soccer league. It was a few years earlier, too. But it's sort of the dalliance of, of this indoor game that the major indoor soccer league had essentially perfected. And the MISL recognizing that they had to go full bore into it. And the sting, as you'll hear with Willie in a couple of seconds, rode that uh, that wave of indoor uh, with some gigantic crowds at the, the old Chicago Stadium, packing into the rafters. So the indoor game was certainly becoming more interesting to the uh, general American fan, for sure, versus the outdoor game. But in Chicago, for a brief period of time, uh, it, that was all the rage, especially with the Bulls and the uh, Blackhawks somewhat languishing. Uh, the indoor version of the Sting, uh, certainly in the, uh, uh, the first go-around of the short sort of NASL season, uh, they played in the MISL. Uh, then the NASL again, when the NASL decided they were going to uh, be serious this time. And then once again, back into the MISL. That's all part of the Sting history. And uh, I, I don't know what the uh, uh, the contents of that article uh, might reveal, but uh, the headline already certainly indicates that uh, the Sting were already kind of, uh, you know, moving their uh, collective gears, I think, more towards uh, the indoor game and possibly seeing that being more financially remunerative. But it certainly didn't mean that they weren't given up on the outdoor field for sure. And that's what we're going to get into, among other things, with Willie Roy this week, uh, our part two conversation uh, around, in this case, the Chicago Sting and uh, and all the uh, the frivolity and the excitement that uh, came around with that. We, uh, we appreciate your listening. And here is that conversation, our part two with Willie coming right up. Please, as always, enjoy. Enjoy. 
Give me a sense then when you're officially handed the reins, what happens, right? Give, give me a sense, because I, I think it's lost on our audience, right? You know, in many respects, the sting at that time, 76, 77, 78, arguably, right? Starting while gaining some some attention, right? And and you, we talked before about some of the players and some of the personalities. It still was kind of still a, somewhat of a vagabond kind of experience, right? Because there was sort of the Soldier Field experience and then, you know, there's playing in, in, in two baseball parks and not necessarily everybody remembering where they needed to play. Uh, you know, give us a sense of sort of how once you get the reins, how you approach coaching this team and all these personalities and frankly, somebody like Lee Stern with some bucks that, you know, this league is really starting to gain some steam now. You know, uh, I don't want to take all the credit. And I also believe that if the team wins, then the coaching staff will get the credit, uh, you know, that we might deserve and, you know, and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I had an opinion because I played as a forward and my basic belief was if we're going to make mistakes, uh, we're not going to be a defensive team. Uh, that tries to prevent a team from scoring goals against us. But if we make mistakes, I'm going to make it in front of the opposing uh, team's goal. You know, the ball might, might bounce the right way for you and you end up getting a, you know easy goal or stuff like that. So my whole uh, uh, approach was to build an exciting offensive team. And goal scoring-wise, we ended up doing that, you know, uh, for most m- most of my coaching time, uh, that we, and it's amazing how you know from game to game uh, how the fans actually enjoyed it, uh, you know, and enjoyed coming, you know, coming to the games and stuff like that. I play golf I, I, just to show you. Uh, last Sunday was like 62, 63, 64. Went to a local golf course over here, and uh, we uh, caught up to a single. And then I said, uh, my name is Willie, and my buddy's name is Nino. And he said to me, what is your last name? I said, Roy, Willie Roy. He used to go to Sting Games, and he remembered the Sting Games. Now, who uh, who remembers the uh, fire football team that George Allen coached over here in Chicago. Yeah, the World Football League and then and the USFL and all these sort of teams that have come in. Yeah, sure, not many, right? Nobody, nobody remembers them, but they still remember the Chicago Sting. So, okay, so let's let's get give me some sense then of what made this team and this time and this city so special. You mentioned, I think, a little bit before, right? Some of the personalities involved, right? Give me a sense of because not only I mean you're, you got to be a coach, right? And you were a darn good one uh, that really brought this team to become one of the better sides. And frankly, didn't even you know I, one of the consistently better sides, short of a championship, which obviously took care of itself a little later on. But how do you corral and find these great personalities uh, and players? And how do you also then sort of help the process of the sting becoming more known and appreciated uh, as a team, as a club, because some of that's on field play, which is important, but also some of it is, shall we say, external marketing and, 
and the community and awareness to kind of generate enthusiasm for this club and get people to come out of the games. Well, I, you know, but first of all, winning does wonders. Okay. Uh, and the uh, kind of players that we had, Pat Omahedic with his long blonde hair in those days, you know, unheard of. Everybody pretty much short hair, the whole thing. Karl Heinz with his pink, uh, 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 pink glasses. And, and the actual stories, I would call Johnny Morris and I would call Tim Weigel and Bruce Roberts. And, you know, I'll, I, I would call them and say, listen, if you have a slow day, a slow day, and you need somebody, give me a call, and we'll run a player over there. Or Lee Stern was a good interview. You know, he loved, uh, I mean, you know, he probably watches every night while we're speaking, uh, uh, you know, uh, some replays of his interviews. And, you know, I didn't do so badly myself on television and radio and stuff like that. So, you know, what we, I think, uh, once people listen to us and stuff like that, and they saw that you're being, you know, kind of honest, not like nowadays, uh, we're talking about the Bears, and nobody knows whether Trubisky is going to be a good quarterback, uh, a bad quarterback, instead of being honest, saying, you know what, hey, he's going to have to prove himself this year, otherwise we're going to have to make changes and be honest with the public, you know. Uh, and I think we really were honest with our fans and, and we did have a good product, you know, uh, John McDonough, for instance, who worked for the Chicago thing for about four or five years. I didn't know whether you knew that the current president of the Blackhawks, and he didn't know anything about soccer and he was in our sales department and then I, I heard an interview by coincidence where he uh, was being interviewed and he said you know what you don't have to know anything about anything if you have a good product it will sell itself and he's right well and you were arguably you're the chief product guy right you got to make sure that the players and, and the absolutely and, and what kind of what kind of hand did you have Give me the, a sense of the process of how you were complementing these uh, uh, these German players, which arguably was kind of the base once you took the reins. Where and how, and maybe the process of finding and and discovering and 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 getting new players to kind of sort of, if you will, augment your product on the field. You know what we we did things uh, because I was basically brought up in the United States. I was 13 years old when I came here, so I played softball. You know I. I, I did all the American sports because soccer wasn't played in schools, uh, only in the private uh, ethnic community uh, clubs. Uh, we used to get involved, uh, and I'm so proud of all my American players, the, the Rudy Glenns, the Charlie Fikers, uh, the John Timas, uh, uh, the Stevie Longs, the Brett Halls, all the players uh, uh, that I drafted, you know, from the college, uh, scene. And we used to have charity events that the Bulls, they had a softball team, uh, you know, different sports, the ice hockey, they had a softball team. So we used to play against the, uh, Chuck Sw uh, Swirskis and, 
all, you know, I don't want to call them clowns, uh, uh, radio announcers and stuff like that. Sure, like those press and, games, the, the press, uh, you know, kick around. Right, yeah, yeah. Right. And that's how we kind of worked ourselves into their hearts that they said, hey, man, you know what? These guys are really cool or, you know, they're smart, they're college educated, most of them and blah, blah and blah, blah. And, you know, and you start spreading out, uh, you know, what you're trying to sell. So as the team's getting better, I mean, I, uh, other names to come, like Ingo Peter and Franz Mathieu and, uh, you know, on and on and on. We get into some of those. But I get the sense that around 1980 or so is kind of where things kind of even sort of blew up even further, right? I, your attendance was still relatively lagging, right, in, you know, the years leading up to that, right? So 8,000 or so. But, you know, 79 is when I remember this game watching as a kid. You got a great crowd at Wrigley Field uh, against the Cosmos, which is obviously always a top drawer. And it seems like that fans were really starting to kind of make the sting more of a substantial part of their of their sporting attention and maybe peaking around the time that you guys were truly, uh, and maybe to your point, because you're winning, that doesn't hurt either. No. Um, uh, and, you know, I keep going back to winning is basically everything. People want to feel good about being, you know, uh, you want to be around friends that are successful. You want to be, because that's how you learn. That's how you prosper. That's, you know, how, you know. Uh, I, I had the opportunity in my days to coach um, against two of my idols in those days, uh, uh, Hennes Weisweiler, who coached the Cosmos, and uh, another guy, Linus Mikkels, that coached Johan Cruyff, the Dutch national team, and, you know, and suddenly here we are, and I'm like a nobody from the southwest side of Chicago, and I'm beating with my team. I'm, you know, we're beating all these world-class players, Beckenbauer, Pele, and all these, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, it, it, you know, I, I, I don't know how, how to express myself that I felt, no, it wasn't my doing, it was my team's doing, but yet I had something to do with what my team was doing. Now, I think that's hugely important and a fantastic observation because let's let me use that as a segue into the cosmos for a second. Because if there's any team, obviously that that most people love to hate, it was the cosmos, and there were various reasons for that. And and you know we can we've talked about it many many times about sort of were the cosmos the best and or the worst of the league and and all the all the rationale. But when it came when it came to competition. I mean, probably no bigger nemesis, frankly, than the Cosmos for the Chicago Sting. And, and, and many times, many, many times, you guys, maybe to your point, punching above your weight, so to speak, given all the stars and the, and the legacies and all that stuff, you had the Cosmos number on many, many occasions. Give me a sense of that rivalry. How, why, uh, what do you think, sort of, give me some sense of it. Uh, you know, but um, as, as a player or as a coach... I think you need uh, reasons to motivate. And a lot of times, it is a lot harder to motivate your group when you play a bad team or a team that has a bad record or for whatever. And, you know, you, uh, you know what? when we played the Cosmos, I really didn't have to go into my bag of trips. Uh, we had, uh, you know, 
Uh, we knew who, uh, or I knew who was driving that team, Bogicevic in midfield for many years. You know, so we have to eliminate him. So, you know, that's going to disrupt their style of play. But you look at Neske and Skysberg and Beckenbauer, Seninho, uh, 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 Canalia, you know, Franz Matthew. Yeah, he was so much quicker than Canalia. So Canalia was not a threat against us, even though he scored a lot of goals against everybody else. So we eliminated their strong points. And then we said, the rest is up to us now. But the Pado, Karl Heinz. I remember one game especially. Uh, New York uh, let Sininho uh, go. So Sininho said the only team he wants to play for is Chicago because he played against us many times for the Cosmos and he knew what kind of style we play, blah, blah, the whole thing. So I get a phone call from his agent and he was making $175,000 in New York in those days. So I mean, I, I, wow, that's I mean, I, I'm a big Sinino fan, but but, you know, he was he wasn't even sort of in the top tier of stars. And that's a pretty significant salary at that point in time. Yeah, but he was he he was a good player. But, they, you know, the problem, they, you know, the league had they had to start four American players. So sometimes even one of the stars would have to be sitting on the bench to put an American player in, and you know, just to see what works best for them. So anyway, his agent calls me, Tim, and he says, you know, Sininho, uh, either he'll, he'll go back to Portugal or he only wants to play for one team. That's your team. So I said, fine. He, um, so I said, I really do not have a lot of money left in my budget. And he says, well, I don't think money should be an issue. So I'm being honest with him. And I said, all I have is, $38,000. And the guy hung up the phone on me. The agent. Click. Calls back 10 minutes later. He said that was an insult. And I told him, you know what? Uh, nobody, I was being honest with you, because if he came to us and found out that, you know, we had way more money available and stuff like that. Do you think he would be a good player for us? He said, no, he wouldn't be. So uh, to uh, come to the point, Sininho signs with us, okay? And three weeks later, we have a game in New York against the Cosmos. So what does Sininho do? He scores two goals, gets an assist. We beat the Cosmos five to nothing in New York, which nobody else had ever done. Uh, and uh, we used to go up, they, they had a, a lounge upstairs uh, at Giant Stadium. So we went uh, there, and one of the Erdogan uh, owners, uh, whether it was Ahmed or the other one, came to me and said, why, why did we let Sininho go? And I looked at him and I said, I don't know why. You have to ask your coaching staff and, you know, whatever. Well, I, that's and that's, but that's also, a, 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 I guess, a real testament to your understanding of the game, and maybe sort of not getting too much uh, around sort of the, I guess, the aura of the cosmos. I mean, you recognize quality and and the availability of it, but you know, there's probably no more, I guess, dramatic uh, turn, I guess, uh, in that sort of cosmos rivalry than, and I'm sure you remember this in 1981, obviously that championship season of the Sting, right? 
There was a very, it was a huge game in uh, I think it was in June at Wrigley Field. I think it was over thirty thousand people in there, which is like a, a huge record crowd by then, and then by then and then some. And it was an amazing game, probably one of the better games ever in NASL history. It was a six-five shootout win over the Cosmos. I don't know how much you remember about that game, but if there's any game that defined maybe your destiny later in the, in the in the year and onward. It was probably that game in terms of the crowd, in terms of the, the beating of the mighty Cosmos, and ultimately what wound up becoming a, a championship beating those very same cos- Cosmos later in the year. Uh, the amazing part was we actually had a winning record against the Cosmos, and yet when it came to, uh, you know, to the uh, championship game in Toronto, we were the underdog. And uh, uh, we had a banquet together. The, we stayed at the Sheridan Hotel, you know, yeah, beautiful hotel, nice hotel. And the Cosmos brought in their own cook, their own chef, fed them whatever they were eating. I, you know, I didn't want to know what, uh, what they were eating because it, it didn't help them. And uh, you kind of looked, I mean, they put themselves on the pedestal where I said, okay, we're the uh, blue collar team. Uh, we don't have, uh, you know, whoever, uh, uh, name me a good uh, clothing maker that makes suits or uniforms. They designed their own uniforms. They, you know, we went to the shelf of Adidas and, you know, okay, that's good enough for us, you know, and stuff like that. And at that banquet, I, you know, you know, we all got a chance to speak and stuff like and I made fun of the Cosmos, and I said, we are so afraid of you guys, and blah, 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 and the whole thing, and guess what? It prevailed again. We ended up winning in the shootout, Rudy Glenn scoring the winning goal for us in the shootout, and, you know, disaster for the Cosmos. It wasn't disaster. Uh, it was a game that we deserved to win. Uh, both teams, uh, both goalkeepers, uh Dieter Ferner for us and the uh, uh, New York goalkeeper, you know, um, both of them had good games and the actual game score could have been, you know, it was what it was, uh, you know, for both defenses. And then again, Franz Matthew taking care of Canalia, you know, and stuff like that. So. Uh, I was at that game at Exhibition Stadium in Toronto, and it was probably the most exciting 0-0 game and drama. So describe to me what might have been indescribable at the time of vanquishing and and, and ultimately, you know, beating the mighty three-time or four-time at the time Cosmos. And then the the reception back in Chicago, which was, is almost like you guys had landed on the moon. You know, some games are a little more tense than other games. And especially, we had games against the Cosmos, the uh, Transatlantic uh, Cup game, uh, where I think uh, Flo- uh, 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 Florence from Italy and Nacional from Uruguay and the Cosmos and us, uh, you know, played for the championship. The uh, Nacional team from Uruguay was the uh, club champions. You know, it's like the UEFA Champions League playing against the South American Champions League. You know, we won that. Uh, so, you know, we played totally against some, but the reception, uh, my good friend, uh, Frank Cracker, who was a cop stationed at O'Hare airport, 
uh, you know, he was at the game with me, you know, like a security guy on our bench and stuff like that. And uh, he said, you know what? When we got to the Toronto airport, they said, we're going to have to delay the flight for a couple of hours because there are thousands of people that are storming to O'Hare, that are going to O'Hare, and uh, we, they have to get more security uh, and, you know, the thing, blah, 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 blah. So eventually, you know, we took off, landed, and Frank told us, you know, in the single line, don't stop, sign autographs, just keep going to, you know, your baggage claim area, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, we come out, I tell you what, Jeannie Morris, Johnny Morris's wife was doing an interview with me down at the baggage claim. I had people uh, uh, grabbing my uh, tie and I almost felt like I was getting choked and stuff like that. And I told my wife and the kids stay in the plane for an extra 30 minutes, 40 minutes till everything cleans out and then come out, you know, uh, because, you know, I didn't want anybody to get hurt. So eventually we come home. I get a phone call from my mother. What kind of son are you? And I said, mom, what are you talking about? What kind of son are you? I was standing in line. You walked right by me. You didn't say hello. You didn't give me a hug. (laughs) She was, she was part of that group of people. So I had to explain to her and then, you know, she got it and, you know, but it was, uh, I mean, those were unbelievable times. And then the parade that we had on LaSalle Street, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, just phenomenal. I mean, everything and, you know, that's when we really became part of Chicago, just like, you know, I, I don't want to um, uh, understate the, the Bears or the Cubs or the White Sox or stuff, but we became a big part of Chicago. Well, yeah, and also it was the first time that Chicago had won any major sports championships since uh, the Bears had done so in 63, yeah. right? So it's a long yeah. drought. And, I, you know, yeah. arguably the, the city grafted its uh, desire for a winner in this uh, now very uh, popular, albeit not necessarily uniformly so, North American Soccer League. You guys had the, eff- effectively the keys to the city, right? I mean, ticker tape parade, the whole right. bit. Now, let me ask you this, though. Did, did you, uh, it seemed like for at least a period of time, and, and rightly so, that that was a crest that you rode for, for a bit of time, uh, including, by the way, getting involved, as the NASL did, in the indoor game. And, and maybe a little bit about that, too, because the games that you guys played at Chicago, the old Chicago Stadium indoors, uh, was uh, just as successful and arguably some of the seeds of where the team was going to wind up going over time. This indoor thing, how, how did you adjust to that, having, you know, sort of dominated and, and winning everything on the outdoor side? How did you approach this indoor curiosity? When you have good players, um, it, it isn't hard to coach them. You know, uh, good players will make good moves and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Karl Heinzgen, it's a part of my headache. Arne Steffenhagen didn't want to play indoors at all. You know, he didn't want to have any part of it. Uh, uh, you needed players with technical ability. Charlie Fikers, one of my American players, stood out playing indoors, playing his one-touch, two-touch. Ingo Peter, uh, you know, with his, uh, uh, you know, tremendous shot. Uh, 
uh, you know, and you you need to have a quick goalkeeper, obviously, and stuff like that. So we had to we had to play a, a personnel. But then one thing that happened, and that started to destroy us, not in '81 or '82, but we went down down the tube where Lee Stern uh, said. You know, we got to let this guy go. We got to let that guy go. It's costing too much money, uh, you know. And, you know, and we kind of let good players like Derek Spaulding, who was a good defender for us on the 81 championship team, you know, we let him go because of $5,000. And, you know, it got to a point, I think maybe Lee thought that I could find players like, Flies and flypaper, you know, you know, all, you know, lifelong. And uh, sometimes when you have a good thing going, you ought to keep it together, you know, till it doesn't work anymore. And uh, I know, and I don't know whether you noticed him, we set the initial record, attendance record at the Chicago Stadium of 19,600 or 700 people bigger than the Bulls and bigger than the Blackhawks, you know. And it seemed like, man, this thing is going to... And then we screwed up big time when we left the stadium and we went to Rosemont. That is like going from, you know, uh, from an opera house to an outhouse. <laughs> That's a, a dramatic statement, but but arguably very true. It almost So it almost sounds like in 81 with the championship, it almost feels like you and this team peaked almost at the exact time that the league itself, frankly, peaked, and maybe even just a tad bit after it was starting to peak, right? And, you know, I think some of those, you're talking about sort of the, the decline of the outdoor game, some of the some of the players and the, the, the real, the, the money issues and, and all that kind of stuff, right? Some of those are, I guess, Chicago-centric, but I think a lot of it, frankly, was really the the league structure that you were part of and, and the decline of that. And there are various reasons for that. But I guess how much would you sort of describe sort of the the denouement or the, the sort of the slide down from the peak, if you will, on the team and, and the city and the situation of, of Chicago versus that of the league and pro soccer itself? It sounds to me like you may be being a little overly harsh on, on your own circumstances then, or, or was it equal, frankly? You know what? I think, uh, just like in politics, I think you have to show that you're willing to improve. The moment you start cutting back on players and stuff, the fans will pick up on it. And they, you know, they will sense and they will see. And then pretty soon, you know, there's a little bit more negativity than you want. And that spreads. Uh, you know, throughout the whole league, then you have teams folding in the league, then you have uh, the media saying, well, they're only going to play indoors, and you have outdoor fans that don't want to go indoors, then you make your move to an indoor facility. Uh, We're on the second floor, they didn't have any bathrooms, and then you had to walk all the way down to the bottom to, uh, to go to a bathroom. And stuff like that. You don't have the same atmosphere that you had at the uh, Chicago Stadium. Uh, I remember Arthur Words, the original owner of the uh, uh, Blackhawks, 
they would wheel him in in his wheelchair and he watch he would watch our soccer games and i'm thinking you know i didn't know at the time he you know his eyesight as we get older you know and everything starts to fail a little bit he couldn't see the puck anymore but the soccer ball was so much bigger so if for him it was ice hockey with a soccer ball and I said, if we can convince people like that to come and watch, you know, we can convince anybody to come and watch. Well, describe to me then, and uh, I want to round this up because we, we could go on for hours, uh, but I, I, I want to get a sense of, so if you could maybe juxtapose the 1984 championship season outdoors from that of, of 81, just three years earlier, because... I, I'm sure people remember, or not many people remember, Chicago Sting were the last official champions of the North American Soccer League three years afterwards in 1984. But the circumstances and the feeling, I'm guessing, was very, very different. And while while the, the rumors about the league not sort of making it and, and the idea of going full-time indoors as that was gaining ascension uh, was certainly in the air... I don't think, I don't think, did you recognize, frankly, or did you know that kind of that at the end of the 84 season that it was basically going to be done despite winning or losing? Yeah, no, uh, again, of course, by the uh, quality of players, you know, everything was shrinking. Everything was, you know, you didn't have the big names and the me- media is the first ones to pick up, you know. Uh, so-and-so isn't playing and that guy isn't playing and this guy's not playing, you know. For me, that was the hardest year actually to coach the uh, Chicago team. I had to make a trade by trading Ricardo Alonso, my big Argentinian backup, uh, you know, for Karl-Heinz Granitza and Charlie Fikers, the by far the most popular, popular American player, uh, I, we were the 500 team when I traded them to San Jose and I got Manny Rojas, who I liked already two years before when he played in Tampa Bay and, you know, uh, just a quality player and uh, a defender, Hayden Knight. Uh, basically, both of them were sitting basically on the bench in San Jose, not playing at all. And now here I'm trading a starter, Charlie Fikers, and uh, a player that played quite a bit off the bench, Ricardo Alonso, you know, for these players. The boos that I got uh, the next few games, even though, you know, we kept winning and winning, you know, and, you know, made it to the championship game and then winning the championship. Then I was a good coach again, you know, but, I knew the end was uh, pretty much coming. So, I mean, to your credit, you were overachieving with with decline with situations maybe beyond your control in terms of payroll and 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 the talent that you were you had to kind of you know it, it sounds like you were not only making do but but uh, overachieving uh, with what you had left and and to your credit you know sticking around and making it happen in that three game series against Toronto to win the championship. Uh, you know what uh, to me. As I look back now, that was probably the hardest coaching job and maybe the best uh, coaching job uh, that I had to do, you know, getting, relying more on the American players than of the older European uh, players, uh, the Mark Symingtons, uh, 
from the U University of Indiana, the John Teamer, who, you know, who came in and scored uh, off the bench, scored, uh, you know, a few really important goals for us. And uh, I think the 81 team, there were, you know, I did put a good team together, but I didn't have to adjust the uh, players a lot, if you understand what I'm saying, uh, uh, to make them click, it kind of fit in. But the 84 team, um, there had to be a lot of adjustments, you know, a lot more coaching, a lot more, you know, and luckily everything worked out. How did it feel beating um, Toronto, uh, who was being managed and uh, overseen by Clive Toy, ironically? You know, but I knew what kind of person he was. He, uh, uh, I have no respect for people like that. He only worked for himself. Uh, you know, it was all about him. Even when we went on that trip, um, backtracking a little bit, when we went to Europe, played three games in Stockholm uh, uh, and Malmo, uh, Sweden, in Holland, in Germany, uh, I I got a phone call from him, even though he was not the president anymore. Uh, and I'll ask him was in Bahrain in the Middle East. And my assistant coach and I had to play because we had injuries that we couldn't even feel, uh, feel the full team. So both of us played and, and played against the national team from Bahrain. I get a phone call from him and he says... Uh, you know, I got another game scheduled, and I said, we're not playing any more games. What do you mean? What do you mean? You know, start screaming on the phone. I said, you can scream all you want. We're not playing any more games. You know, I'm going to call Lisa. I said, you can call God. You can call whoever you want to call. We're not playing any more games, you know. And basically, I get a phone call five minutes later from Lee Stern. Are you, you know, are you sure, you know, we're going to get, uh, you know, 10,000, I don't know what the number was, 10000 or $15,000. It was peanuts. And I said, no, Lee, we're not playing any more games. The team is in, you know, we have enough injuries already. And, uh, you know, I'm not looking for a position on the team as a player. So we're not going to play any more games. Oh, he said, okay, kid, if that's how you feel, you know, then it's okay. And that's, my respect for Clive Torrey. He didn't care about anybody. Get me a box of uh, Cuban cigars. I'm fine. You know, uh, do this or do that. Uh, I just wonder how much money that guy actually made outside of soccer. Well, what I've read is it, uh, it didn't seem like he was a sort of gracious loser uh, when the 84 championship was determined either. No, no. Um, we had had coffee poured. Uh, by going into the uh, locker room, the Canadian Mounted Police, they basically had to uh, protect us, you know, at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, what uh, I think knowledge will always prevail in, in, instead of, and I don't know the, um, you probably know better than I do, Tim. Uh, he didn't have a happy ending in Toronto either when he was hired as a president there. That didn't last too long either. Well, yeah, there's a, an article out there. I think it was uh, the Ottawa Citizen, the newspaper uh, at the time, basically it called the sting 
unworthy champions uh, uh, and cheats and, and that kind of stuff. So I, it's clear that the animosity was was there, uh, perhaps from some of the things you were talking about earlier, but during the Sting days and stuff. But uh, I, I got to think too was also acrimonious for just just everybody involved in the league at that time because survival was absolutely questioned and and obviously it, it wound up being the last year and the last championship of the league and and it seems like the world was kind of moving or becoming accustomed to the idea that the only future that this sport had in the you know early to mid 1980s actually the mid 1980s was indoor and and you guys were doing you guys were more than holding your own indoors but how do you feel about that sort of transition I mean it's obviously a crushing enough that the outdoor game essentially dies uh, as it does. And and for a long period of time thereafter, sadly. But this indoor game, I mean, do, you know, you were talking about how how great players make you great and, and good attendance and stuff. How much conviction did you have that 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 was going to be the future of this game? And and did you think indoor was as good a pursuit as the outdoor game? I what was your feelings about all that? Well, you know what, you really didn't have a choice. I mean, you know what, if I would have said, uh, I mean, I coach both indoors and outdoors. Uh, in New York, uh, Professor uh, Matsey, he only coached outdoors. They had an indoor coach. You know, the pressure, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, suddenly you are coaching two full seasons in one season. And uh, also the pressure on the players, the injury factor. We lost the indoor championship. If you remember, uh, Edmonton beat us in Edmonton. Fine. We come back, we win the regular game in Chicago. You wait a half an hour, then they play a 30-minute mini-game. Now, and we had 19,000 people at the stadium. You know what? Why not wait a week and, you know, have them play next Saturday, you know, and which we would have won. I'm totally, uh, you know, uh, totally sure. Granissa was injured. Uh, Pato was injured. And, you know, you're going out with a wounded troop uh, only to justify that, oh, we don't want them to stay in a hotel another four or five days. Well, you know what? Screw them. Uh, we won the overall league uh, title. You know what? Uh, you know, wait a week. Let the fans get all excited about the upcoming game a week from then. And, you know, we would have had 19,000 at the stadium again. Yeah, and this and this is and I don't want to sort of belabor it, but this is the very interesting sort of period of time when the NASL had woken up to the idea. Uh, this is you know circa 1980, 81 or so that the indoor game actually could be a thing. This is the arrival of the major indoor soccer league. We've talked about this with Ed Tepper on a previous episode, you know, and, and the NASL having kind of started the indoor thing even back in their early 70s, right? But not really doing much with it. You know, and you're, you're describing, I think, maybe the first time we've actually really heard this from a first person, the NASL essentially was kind of sort of figuring out that maybe they wanted to be a full year league with indoor and outdoor play. But, you know, the overlap of the seasons and uh, the, the toll on the players and frankly, right, the, the, the demands of each game, which are really different, right? In the indoor game has a different skill set and a different mindset and a different sort of approach than the outdoor game does. And yeah, some of those, some of those skills translate, but a whole lot of them don't actually. You know, but uh, good players, I will go back to that point. Good players will adjust to it. I mean, I played too in my, in my days, we played at the um, amphitheater uh, indoor games and we played, uh, you know, the uh, regular outdoor league. 
uh, you know, because the weather condition in Chicago, obviously, you know, like everybody else that lives here, yeah, you can't play outdoor soccer in this, you know, January, February, uh, you know, and things like that. But having said that, you would have had almost to have two complete different rosters eventually. Right. Or two different coaching staffs eventually. Because you know what? The pressure is just so enormous. And once you have the reputation, Tim, that, you know, you've been a winning coach, you have a winning team, you have this, and then suddenly things go bad. It's like uh, you're being punished for something that you are being over worked on. Well, all right, let, let's let me round this out because I, you know, th- th- this has been fantastic. I mean, we, we love getting, you know, first person conversations around around all of this kind of stuff. And the sting, you know, there's plenty more that we'd love to dig into at some point. Maybe another conversation with you if you're ever interested, maybe in person, God forbid, at some point when <laughs> the the craziness of the world maybe maybe recalibrates. But you, you kind of hinted at it before, but maybe you can sort of I mean the sting and your role in it, right? Very essential, very crucial, and and quite successful. Put it in perspective, right? Because obviously you've gone on to a very successful collegiate coaching career, and and there's the the Willie Roy Soccer Dome in the Western Burbs, and and you know, and, and a life in soccer, right? National Hall of Soccer Hall of Fame. I mean, obviously your contributions to the game, you know, are gargantuan and significant, and and celebrated for sure, and and rightly so. But to put all that in context, because it, it seems to me that the sting in particular, right, a very, I don't know, can I best describe it, a special moment in time uh, when you juxtapose that against a a life and a career in soccer for you. Uh, I'm guessing it was a special time, and you mentioned it before, people haven't forgotten about this team years afterwards, have they? No, you know, which is, I, I kind of feel, Tim, I'm probably uh, at one point the most blessed person in life. And then six years ago, I lost my wife and I felt that I'm the most cheated person in life. The wonderful person that also helped me stabilize at times, you know, when pressure really got uh, really, you know, kind of tough. And if you look at things, I live in a nice home uh, next to a forest reserve. I, I can see nature, animals, everything. And, you know, I look at my career as a player. Uh, you know, I was never really hurt till I broke my leg uh, after playing one year for the, uh, for the sting. And uh, I'm sitting there saying, wow, what am I going to do for the rest of my life now? And then suddenly the phone call comes from Bill Folks. Uh, he wants me to be an assistant. Well, he had a German assistant by the name of Herbie Teichert, and he used to make tea for Bill Folks. So when Bill uh, called me, and I told him right off the bat, I don't know how to make tea. I don't know how to make coffee. I don't know how to make all that crap. Uh, but if you want an honest opinion as far as players are concerned and stuff like that, then I can be your, you know, your assistant. Until this day, even though he got fired, uh, and I even tell Lee, you know, last time we talked two months ago, 
I told you know what? I have nothing but respect. He brought some good quality young players. Nothing that Clive Toy and Malcolm Musgrove brought, which the players were a joke. Uh, you know, so sometimes you fire the wrong person, or you know, for whatever reason. Uh, uh, you know, obviously Lee looked at uh, you know uh, wins and loss uh, games, and uh, uh, the uh, difference is with the other guy was with Clive. Uh, to me, they were both phony. I mean. This guy could sleep till 11 o'clock in the morning after losing seven straight. And I'm saying to myself, man, I'm, I'm helping him and I can't sleep. And I'm not the one that's getting blamed for this, but I couldn't sleep. Well, I think that's testament to your knowledge and your care for it, right? And, and you know, we've talked to a number of other former players and coaches and administrators, and, and it also sort of speaks to giving a damn, right? And 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 what that translated to. I mean, little kids in the stands like myself back in the day, right? I mean, it, it mattered. People paid attention and 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 the fact that not only the sting in Chicago sports history, but also, you know, amongst soccer aficionados and people remember and the quality of play and all that stuff. And you know, you're an orchestrator of of, of quite a bit of that. And that's that's got to be that has to be part of uh, not only your legacy, but also part of a, a source of pride for you in in what arguably became a very significant contribution to the pro game in this country. Obviously, it makes you feel good. And and I'm sure most of the people that worked in the NESL, I, I, I think they were honest and they tried. Uh, when we had a reunion, uh, I mean, there was a lot of shady stuff going on too. Uh, the uh, former uh, owner of the Tulsa Roughnecks, he was in Kansas City, too, when his son was being inducted into the uh, Soccer Hall of Fame. And we stayed in the same hotel. And afterwards, uh, uh, Carson, uh, one of my twins, not Mark, uh, uh, Marcus's brother, uh, you know, we're in the bar, we're having a beer. And and I asked him, I, you know, I told him, why would you name the, uh, the Tulsa team Roughnecks? And this guy was funny as hell. He said, when you have a bunch of drunk Irishmen, what else do you name it? <laughs> you know, and I said, you got to be kidding me. He said he gave his general manager at the time who came to him and said, uh, I need $50,000 in cash to buy this player in England. So he flew with the $50,000 in cash uh, to London and he said that he wanted to get a cup of coffee, left his bag under a chair, and when he came back, the bag was gone. Can you believe that? <laughs> you know, I, uh, knowing what I've, I've learned about the NASL uh, and more to come, I'm sure. Uh, uh, no, not not too surprising, but but certainly that that stands out. Fifty thousand dollars in cash under a chair. I would have put handcuffs on both of my legs, and you know, and obviously, you know, we didn't deal that way to begin with. But I mean, uh, uh, some of the stuff that came out, uh, you know, just unreal. You know. 
Well, all right. Let me let me preface this last question with uh, a request. I, I, would you come back at some point? And and because I'd love to go into some of the intricacies, of some of the seasons, and some of the the play, and some of the games that you might remember. Because frankly, this has been tremendous in and of itself. But I, I think there's a bunch of other sting memories in there that we could probably suss out uh, if you're willing. But uh, I'll let you. Th- Absolutely, Tim. Absolutely. I could let you sleep on it, too. That's OK. Uh, you don't have to give me an yeah. answer. Put you in the spot. But so, so let me ask you this tr- wrap up question, because I think it's really uh, you're in a unique position maybe to answer it is is uh, what is your sense of the state of and again, I'm, I'm taking our current we're recording this in the middle of the pandemic, uh, the coronavirus issues and all that. stuff. And there's a lot of there's a big, you know, a big shock to the sports system. But assuming all this sort of plays out in the months to come and gets back to some level of normalcy, what do you feel the state of soccer in this country is at the pro level with MLS? Uh, how many franchises can it be? And as well as our ability to play or not play or compete on the international level, uh, good, bad neutral, worrisome? What are your feelings? I have mixed emotions. I think uh, the owners you know, of, uh, uh, of the teams, they've done a great job as far as building the soccer-related stadiums. I know if we would have had a stadium, even though it was in Bridgeview or whatever you want to call that uh, suburb, uh, you wouldn't be able to get a, uh, a seat because the team was so exciting. Uh, and I, I think as far as the uh, talent in the league, obviously, you know, there's a lot of hype. You know, somebody, I don't know which team, they got Chicharito. I think he's going to L.A., I think to the L.A. team. But you know what? He never made it in Europe. He played with Leverkusen in Germany. He went to England, and but he was n- never a regular starter, you know, ninety percent starter uh, in the whole thing. And I think building the stadiums absolutely phenomenal. I wish we would have had them. Uh, you know, uh, that would have been a good thing. I think the league, the quality needs to improve, or they have to say, you know what. I know Garber, he was against when Klinsman was the uh, national team coach. And Klinsman said, let all the players, the good ones that want to play in Europe, let them play in Europe because they're going to have an atmosphere, which I totally agree, which is like football over here, uh, you know, uh, that they're going to be involved and get this tremendous feeling, you know, that the sport is really number one in the world. And uh, instead of trying to keep uh, players over here and they're playing at a B minus level, not like in Europe, but they play at an A minus level, you know, or a C plus level over here. And uh, that needs to be improved. Otherwise than that, I think, you know what, God bless, uh, you know, the women's soccer program all the success that they're having, you know, because a lot of, you know, young girls, uh, they're going to go out and play soccer. That's going to promote it. And, you know, the power of women, there's no man strong enough to beat a good woman at any game. Of course not. Are you happily married? I, uh, yes, and two daughters as well. So uh, for sure. Oh, oh, oh I, man, 
I'm all about the girl power for sure. You know that. Did, did, did I say the right thing then? Of no, course. I, I, no, no doubt. And, and I, frankly, the future of the women's pro game has had its fits and starts. I, how about sort of on the international level then, uh, the last sort of point of all this is, you know, so for, and yes, we can criticize sort of MLS and, and, and but you know, there, there are roots there. There's infrastructure right now. Central control, don't know, right? 30 franchises, don't know, right? Uh, the television thing is, are people really watching? Perhaps. I mean, it's the quality of play behind, you, you know, ar- arguably, yeah. I mean, but, you know, you could argue 10, 20 years from now, it could be it could be something more and substantial and maybe more. But but it's certainly so for, for all the steps forward and maybe a few steps back on that front. Right. It's still around. Right. Twenty five years is longer than the NASL lasted. Right. And all it's we're, we're talking about two different things. You know, who the hell would want to watch a game at Soldiers Field well, when I played in 67 when they still had the track? They used to have car races going around there, you know. It wasn't like Soldiers Field is now, where the uh, fans are close, close, closer to the actual playing field, you know. And uh, yeah, um, what did Soldiers Field? I think the capacity at one point when we were there was almost close to a hundred thousand. No, it was cavernous. I mean, it was, just, it was a joke, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, absolutely. And that's my point. You have to be, you know, in a situation where you kind of feel comfortable, you know. And you can have the best chef in the world, Tim, and you put them in a big banquet hall with uh, 10 people there. The people are going to say, you know, what's going on here? Why is nobody eating here? And, and he, you know, he might make the best meal in the whole world. But you put 10 people into a closet and, you know, three people waiting outside. Then the people are going to say, man, you know, we better make reservations early. Otherwise, we can't get into into this place. So, you know. And I think that, that that infrastructure, I mean, there's you know, is no no small feat, you know, creating sort of these largely uh, soccer specific and in the more realistic kind of kind of environment. But for all those positives, right, there's still that sort of lasting and maybe stinging now, no pun, challenge, right, which is it has not consistently or, or certainly and certainly now translated into uh, any level of of true international success aside from the women i'm putting them on the side because they're they're arguably in a different category but on the men's side what's it going to take to kind of get us in a realm where we can actually be not only successful but just competitive on a, on a regular basis internationally tim uh just going back to my days with the uh, national team uh we're going to a training place in bermuda hamilton uh uh anyway in bermuda First training session, suddenly we have two coaches, George Meyer from the Midwest and Geza Henny from New York. So uh, George Meyer, and I will remember this till I die, he said, oh, we're going to start walking. And Geza Henny looks at George Meyer and says, no, we're going to start jogging. And, you know, here I am, a young player. The federation didn't even tell who the head coach was. They each thought, you know, George thought he was the head coach. Gaza Henny thought he was the head coach. And it was just, the atmosphere was absolutely horrible. You know, nobody knew who was in charge, you know, and, uh, you know, and stuff like that. So soccer has really, I think, I look at the few games that we played never prepared, all the coaches. I mean, in, in my time, I can tell you probably had five, six coaches in my time. Uh, this stability 
that you don't have, you know, in Europe, at least for four years, unless you really fail trying to qualify for, uh, you know, for the European Championships or for the World Cup, you know, big countries like Germany, England, Italy, Spain, uh, uh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, uh, the instability in those days, and I don't know, uh, because the men's team is not really, I mean, you really don't know when the next game is, whether to look forward to the next game. Who was the uh, the black kid that came out? Adu, remember that name? Sure, Freddie Adu, the uh, supposed next Pelé, right? Yeah, yeah, he was going to be the next Pelé. And everybody talked about him. You know what? The guy never panned out. And whoever sent those wrong messages out, I mean, you know, he ended up, I think, playing in Norway for a couple of years and, you know, kind of disappeared. And I feel bad for him because they made him out to be something that he never could achieve. Yeah, or frankly, anybody, frankly, could achieve. I think, I think arguably, that's a bit of sort of maybe the, I want to call it desperation, but the, the, the just sheer desire to have to break through to that sort of next level. And, um, you know, aside from 2002, when, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, did tremendously well in the, the Men's World Cup, uh, it's, and again, I'm, I'm putting the women's game completely to the side. It's a whole different, that's a whole different universe of success. Yeah. But but I still remain hopeful, and I, and I suspect that you do too. We do have a pro league that has been substantially there uh, for 25 years and then some, and seems to be fiscally sound. That, that at least gives some roots of, of infrastructure, right? There's no shortage of the game on television now, right? I mean, we're in, it's an embarrassment of riches. So I, the development of players, right? I mean, I see it uh, with my own kids, right? I mean, it, kids and their parents start to get really serious about stuff like when they're like nine and 10. Now, maybe overcoached and all that stuff for sure. But but there's there's a, there's something there, right, that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago about, I guess, roots and or uh, aspirations, a, a real pro career as possibilities, I mean, at least those have to be significant moves forward than maybe where we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Oh, no, no, without any question. I, you know, the, uh, I think the, found, the foundation is there. You know what? You or myself, as a former player, you know, I would like to see it go a little bit faster. I would like to see a little bit uh, less overcoaching you know, you know, when people talk to me, oh, yeah, my kid plays on a traveling team. And I said, you know, I played on a traveling team, too. I used to take a bus for an hour and a half to go from the uh, from Midway Airport to 95th and Calumet. You know, that was my traveling team. But we didn't have overcoaching. We developed by playing on bad fields. Now, you know, the field, the grass is a little bit too high or, or you know, that type of thing. Well, that's for the uh, Brazilians and Argentinians, that's where they excel by playing on crappy fields, by playing on bumpy fields. So they learn to how how they you know trap a ball when it doesn't bounce perfectly, you know, every time and you know and and and, and stuff like that. Uh, maybe I'm being a little selfish for the time that I have left on this earth. That I would like to see a U.S. team make it to the semifinals of the World Cup, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, you know what? Soccer's come such a long way that you can see the Champions League, the UEFA, 
uh, league games. You see uh, Bundesliga soccer, English soccer, Italian soccer, Spanish soccer. Why would they show it over here if there isn't somebody that says, you know what, the future is going to be in the United States? All right, our tremendous and uh, over-the-top thanks to our new pal, Willie Roy, and um, all of his various recollections, both last week, uh, generally around the uh, NPSL, the early days of the NASL, the the formative uh, moments of his Sting career, and of course this week, as we got more in-depth with the Chicago Sting, and and there's absolutely more uh, stories, I believe, to be had. And perhaps, maybe uh, we'll have Willie back maybe in person someday when we can all actually be in person one more time. Uh, let's hope that happens sooner rather than later before we all go stir crazy. And maybe even bring in Chief Chronicler that we had on our episode number 128, Mike Conklin, he ex of the uh, Chicago Tribune and longtime scribe and follower of the Chicago uh, Sting. And uh, God forbid we could uh, get uh, into some more in-depth recollections and stories and all kinds of stuff, not only about the Sting, of course, but uh, the North American Soccer League and all its wackiness. We love the NASL. It's a tremendous topic, and uh, it is the proverbial gift that keeps on giving for this show, for sure. Uh, We want to thank, of course, not only uh, Willie, but uh, you for listening. Uh, If you want to keep abreast of uh, our little doings on this show, by all means, uh, bookmark our uh, website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's the place to find out what's going on. It's also the place to find every single one of our stinking episodes to date. Three years worth already, if you can believe it. Uh, If uh, your friends don't already know about this show and they haven't already added it to their podcast catcher to uh, subscribe to for every episode, no greater place to get people interested than to send them to the website and have them pick and choose maybe some of the episodes that that might intrigue them most. Uh, Of course, on there, you'll find the links to all of our social media feeds, but you can do that directly at... uh, uh, with uh, these following little handles. If you want to find us on Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still Available. If you want to find us on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, we're uh, on Facebook as well. as a page devoted to us there. You can also, on the website, sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Uh, that gives you a little bit of a tidbit of and a tip-off to what uh, we're going to be talking about each coming week, a little earlier than the, uh, the average Joe. And let's see what else. You can also send us email. There's a link on the website, but you can also do that to us Send that to us directly. And we are at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Our uh, uh, inimitable, no, our thanks to the inimitable. That's what he's trying to say. Jerry Payne, our uh, producer and director and uh, editor extraordinaire. Jerry Payne, audio excellence down in suburban Atlanta. Thank you so much, sir, for soldiering on in your own way, in your own home, and uh, as well as uh, everybody else listening out there. We uh, are with you. We hope you're making the best of challenging situations out there. We will do our best to keep going uh, and uh, giving you a little bit of, uh, of a breather from uh, the uh, the world's troubles. And uh, we appreciate your support, of course, as always. So until next week, knock on wood, uh, we'll see you. And we, again, greatly appreciate your listening. Until then, take care, everybody. Truly, take care. Take care.